Welcome to Buzzsaw 2020. I'm your host, Sean Stone, and you're listening to us via Monument Productions, which is an amazing group that's just started, a new podcast company, and they are our sponsors, our hosts, and we are very happy to be here with Tom O'Neill, who is the author of a tremendous book that I could not put down. I read this book within 24 hours of getting it, literally just could not stop reading it, and it's about 400-plus pages, so it was quite a read. But uh, Tom has written this book, about the Manson family, really Charles Manson's called Chaos, and it's the secret history, in a sense, of the 60s, and there's so many things that he brings up in this book, and Tom, it's really, it's a pleasure to have you. I know Manson's on everyone's mind because of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this new uh, Tarantino film, and even though, you know, it's, I don't want to give away the ending, it's fun, I mean, I think people can enjoy it and watch it, but really, you watch that film and you come away and you go, man, I want to know more about what really happened and uh, we I always doubted I always doubted the official story I mean I'm one of these people that grows up from a conspiracy family we, we, we we're skeptics you know I don't want to say like everything right. is conspiracy but you know you have to be skeptical you have to be a, a critical thinker in life if you want to actually understand how things work you can't just accept what the news and the mainstream media tells you and your government officials you know say is this this is the official source well that doesn't make it true so you know we, we tend to keep our minds open and really question what happened that night August 8, 69. And, uh, you know, Manson obviously wasn't even there. He didn't kill anyone that night. But, uh, you know, everyone thinks of the murders. And they think of Charles Manson. So, Tom, with this book, you did something really interesting, which is to bring out this whole other side of Charles Manson, which was mm-hmm. basically the fact that here is this parolee who spent half of his life in jail or more, I don't know, half his life or more in jail at that point. And he's on, constantly been on parole. He's He's uh, pretty much a lifer, <laughs> as they call yeah. it, you know, lifelong criminal. And here he is on parole, and he constantly is, he's out there, you know, picking up young girls, uh, with, you know, he's caught with underage women, and every time he gets picked up, he gets released again. And you're sitting there going, right. this doesn't make sense. You know, this isn't mm-hmm. reality. If I was, you know, if I was just, if he was just a nobody getting picked up on, you know, is on probation and, you know, a parole and he's, and he's basically doing things that are criminal, you know, you go right back to jail. What's going on here? So you came across this whole other side of the story, which involved intelligence, which involved um, the whole uh, uh, Haight-Ashbury, you know, drug experiments going on in San Francisco. So tell us a little bit of this sort of the surprising angle for you know for you that you came across here in the Manson story and why this guy was almost untouchable in the months leading up the year the years and months leading up to uh, the murders. Okay, sure. And I came to this completely different from you. I was skeptical of any kind of conspiracy thing. I was not inclined to be interested in anything at all that wasn't based in concrete facts. So for me, it was a real kind of learning experience and an awakening. Um, And that might have been one of the reasons why it took 20 years, because it took a long time for me to be persuaded that the stuff that I kept finding was accurate. And as my agent once said to me, I I was my best enemy and my own worst enemy, because every time I found something out that was kind of exciting or radical, uh, I'd have to prove 10 different ways that it's correct rather than wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'd circle it until I 
found out there was no other way it could have happened but that way. And that was one of the first discoveries was uh, Manson's parole uh, relationship with, with the office after he was released in 67. He immediately he was released in Los Angeles from Terminal Island and uh, immediately violated his parole, took a bus to San Francisco, showed up at the office there and announced that he was there and he needed a parole officer up there because he'd rather be there than Los Angeles. Uh, the office was enraged at him and they were going to violate him. I found these documents, or I got these documents through about two-year Freedom of Information Act request uh, effort uh, with the Bureau of Prisons and, and U.S. Probation and Parole. And they dribbled out a lot of redactions, I'd argue, for the redactions restored. And what happened was I found that from the day he was released in March of 67 until he was arrested for the last time with the entire family in Death Valley in October of 69, he had frequent arrests and frequent violations, and every time it happened, it was swept under the rug. He was released, and at first I thought it was incompetence, you know, and then it became so consistent, and there was mm -hmm. such a pattern of catch and release. I took it to a deputy DA, a retired deputy DA, who actually was a head DA in the San Fernando Valley in the late 60s and 70s, the same time that, well, part of the same time Manson was operating there. And he looked at all the documents I had, and he just shook his head, and he said, this is all chicken shit, chicken shit. He kept mm. saying that. And he said, this guy clearly was more valuable to someone outside than inside. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to find out who that was. And, and I said, well, you know, who are you saying it could be? He goes, well, he, he was working for someone, and that's why they called him informant. She, it's, it's impossible to find out, but try. And I said, where do I look? And he said, start with federal, you know, CIA. FBI, uh, local, state, uh, Los Angeles Sheriff's Office, LAPD. But this guy clearly was getting released for a reason. Someone wanted him out. So that kind of was a launching point for the whole 20-year book. That was one of the first big discoveries. Mm -hmm. uh, why was Manson allowed to con continue to commit some pretty uh, heinous crimes? Involved, a couple rapes, a couple rapes of younger girls, uh, weapons possessions, car theft. Every time he was released. Exactly, exactly. And this catch and release style, we've seen it with the intelligence world, obviously, throughout um, current history. And so mm. um, before um, <clears throat> going down that path, I want to give a little bit of a context. For me, I got into this um, story with Manson really through Maury Terry's book, The Ultimate Evil. And I'm curious if you ever, if you, I'm sure you read it in the course of your investigation. Well, I referred to it. I actually was on the phone yesterday with a company. They're doing a... a the documentary series on that book. Really? And the director was working with Maury Terry, who passed away a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And before he passed away, Maury gave him permission to use whatever, if he didn't survive, whatever it was he died from. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it seems like it's going to be a pretty good project. Um, I talked to him a number of times. As I told them yesterday, I said, you know, he has a lot of good uh, good evidence in there, but he then reaches beyond a little bit too much. And if you, you, well, you've read my book, but if your viewers or listeners read it too, they'll see that every time I started to go a little too far, I would reel in backwards because I don't want to say anything in my book unless I can definitively prove it. Sure. In other words, I'm just, I'm just presenting evidence and letting the readers decide what they think might have happened. I think Maury didn't do that to his own detriment. It's an amazing book, and he worked on it, I think, as long as I did. But um, I just read – I didn't really go into the Son of Sam stuff. I, I was looking into the 
unsolved murder of Marina Marina Habe, who was a lot of people thought she was killed by the Manson family. She was a young girl, daughter of a famous writer, Hans Habe, and an actress who disappeared in Hollywood and was found about three days later off Mulholland Drive, stabbed. Mm-hmm. I can't remember how many times. And Maury did a lot of good investigative work on that. There's a few sections on, on the book on it. So he, he was helpful with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I never connected Manson to Zodiac or, or Son of Sam or any of those. No, the only reason I bring it up is because there's a certain context of contextualization for understanding how the intelligence world oftentimes intersected with these satanic or, like, you know, cult operations. Right. And that's right. what Ultimate Evil was trying to paint a picture. And I interviewed this guy, Detective uh, Jim Boots Rothstein, I think it was, who was one of the New York detectives who was investigating the um, Son of Sam crimes, right? And he goes, mm-hmm. you know, look, we all confronted the problem that there were murders going on up in Yonkers and in this park area up there. And there was satanic and ritual, very ritualistic, uh, murdering of uh, German shepherds and also bodies being found. And he said all this was squelched. And basically they, tr- they created this whole idea of one guy, you know, the son of Sam was one, you know, one nut. Right. And he said it was a cult and it was connected. He, you know, he said, look, it connected to elements within the intelligence world, within the United Nations individuals that were um, basically trafficking, being, I'm sorry, United Nations officials or people around politics that were having sex with young women. They're oftentimes mm-hmm. being trafficked. So there's this interesting nexus of a world, and Manson's part of this, right? He's got these young girls that are basically under yeah. his influence, right? And so there's this real, this dark side of what we've seen over the years exposed more and more from the Epstein murder recently. I'm sorry, the suicide, whatever it was. I, I, I don't, I, I you know, suicide. Your bias but, is showing. Right? The question is, yeah. um, but the Epstein uh, story more recently, all the way, yeah. you know, back to this time period, and, you know, you get things in between like the... Um, uh, the Franklin scandal, right, and, and, and uh, mm-hmm. stories like this that come up. But there's this interesting nexus of cult, dark, dark cult ritual stuff, got, you know, guys that are into the dark arts, but then trafficking of young boys and girls for sexual purposes, mm-hmm. politicians mm-hmm. oftentimes being serviced and then protecting the cult leaders, mm-hmm. if not actively, you know, going to some of these rituals. Because obviously, you know, we can't just say that there are people, you know, doing satanic activities I've heard throughout the years that are lawyers and mayors and you know judges mm-hmm. and police officials you know there, there there's a there are strange things that go on in this world so that's there's why a dark underworld exactly yeah, yeah the sinister forces mm-hmm. as uh, peter lavenda called it in his great trilogy mm-hmm. so i that's what i think fascinates me about manson is like this is kind of one of those tip of the iceberg things and you listen to the guy and he kind of starts hinting at this stuff in his interviews where it's like Geraldo, where it's like he's saying things like, you know, I knew Frank Costello since I was a kid in, in prison. And you got to wonder, maybe that's where he started getting picked up by some of these elements, whether it was, mm-hmm. you know, mafia tied to the intelligence world. Because, you know, he's like we said, he's a pretty much a lifer in prison. But when he does go out, mm-hmm. he's under he's an informant. He's obviously being protected by whether it's CIA or, you know, some dark, you know, unit. Let's go into let's go into another character that you came that you that you came across, and this is fact in your book, Chaos. Mm-hmm. This guy, uh, I'm blanking his name. He's a fascinating character. This guy's like a, a total. Let me guess. Uh, Reeve yeah. Whitson. Yeah, what's his name? Reeve. Reeve Whitson or Jolly West? They're the yes. two that people are really fascinated well, by. Well, Jolly West, we've known about in the intel. You know, those of us yeah. who've researched this have heard about Jolly West and the mind control research for a long time. But Reeve. Mm-hmm. He's a great character you came across. I mean, here's tell a little bit about what you found on this character, Reeve. Yeah, I mean, I just stumbled upon him, uh, a fellow named Hatami, who was Sharon Tate's official photographer. He kind of followed her for a year or two as a personal photographer. They were very close. 
he was a key witness at the trial. He, in the official version, saw Manson when Manson came to the Cielo house looking looking for Terry Melcher, who used to live there, and he had this confrontation with him. Uh, when I interviewed Hatami, he had never given an interview before uh, about what happened, and this was 99 when I began. Since, since I interviewed him, he did speak to a few more people, but what he told me was he was coerced by the prosecution to testify. Uh, he was an Iranian immigrant. His papers weren't in order. They threatened Bugliosi. He said threatened to uh, deport him if he didn't testify to the way he needed him to testify. And he said the person that arranged everything and was the middleman between the prosecution and him was someone named Reed Woodson, who I'd never heard of. Uh, and he described him as this sh shadowy guy who seemed to appear at parties that Sharon had, and, and they would see him kind of on the periphery of everything. Well, I looked into him and found out he had died about a year or two before. And long story short, once I was able to find his family, his close friends, his, his ex-wife and daughter, I learned that he had been working for some type of federal intelligence agency. They all thought it was the CIA. I mean, I foiled every agency it could have been. It was definitely counterintelligence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the CIA, I got the typical, we can neither confirm nor deny answer. Um, but what Whitson told his closest friends right before he passed away was that um, his dying regret was he could have prevented the murder of Sharon Tate, but mm -hmm. didn't. And what was even more startling was he said he was at the murder scene after the murders had been committed, but before the bodies had been discovered, right. you know, by the maid and the police. Because it was under surveillance, uh, right? The house was supposed to be under surveillance. Well, that's, yeah, I, I present a case in the book of a, a documented paper trail of, of the police knew what Manson was doing to the, to the hour that the killers left the Spawn Ranch. They had a report on Manson arriving back that afternoon with narcotics from the Bay Area. They were off by one day. He arrived the day before. They also knew he was going to be with a teenage girl, a new runaway, and he was. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's, it's complicated to get into without providing the context, but there's a lot of evidence that after the murders were officially committed about finishing about 12.30 or 1 in the morning, and the, the original, the first killers left, about two hours later there were all these reports uh, from neighbors and even two private security guards who were patrolling the area of gunshots screaming and yelling and arguing from, from the Tate house. Mm. Bugliosi in his book, Helter Skelter, mentioned two of those, but not the other three or four. So he downplayed it. Uh, he, what Manson said later in an unauthorized biography that he first said he did authorize and then he distanced himself from was that he went up to rearrange the scene with someone who he wouldn't name mm -hmm. or to see what his children had done. Mm -hmm. And if you read the book, you'll see, I, th I think there's a good case that Reeve was working for an agency that did that type of thing. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know if you want to get into that COINTELPRO and chaos, but uh, that's hypothetically who, who he was working with. Yes. Well, let's, we'll get into that in a second. First, it's important. There was a, the, the owner. So I'm trying to remember, recall this detail. So the owner. Rudy Altabelli. I'm sorry. What was that his name? Alf Rudy Altabelli. Yeah. Altabelli. The owner of the house. Was yeah. he on the property that night or who was the person on the property that said that they didn't hear anything? He was the, he was a gatekeeper, was it? or what? Oh, no. Yeah. He was a caretaker who was in the back house, uh, Bill uh, Bill Garrison. Okay. Did who, you ever look into this? Survived. Yeah. Did you ever look into this? Why he never? Why you know? Was he was he covering up the fact? Because he you know like he's, he's he didn't hear anything that whole night, right? I mean, yeah. 
That Listen. was one of the first things I was really stumped by when I was so new to this. I was a virgin. I'd never read Helter Skelter. I just couldn't figure out how he couldn't have heard this horrific slaughter that happened right outside his, his window. You know, women screaming, gunshots firing. Uh, <laughs> it's and, insane, right? I mean, we, yeah. and <laughs> in I did, the quiet of the I night. To him. I found him in Ohio, was the first one to interview him, too. He ended up talking to other people later. And the first thing he told me was that he had heard everything. Um, he had buried it, you know, uh, and had had been triggered when he saw uh, Diane Sawyer's interview of the Manson women and Patricia Krenwinkel describing stabbing uh, Abigail Folger on the lawn and Abigail Folger saying, stop, stop, I'm already dead. He said when he saw Patricia Krenwinkel tell that story on Diane Sawyer's show, he flashed back and remembered it. And he said he knew that he wrote everything in letters of what he experienced and heard that night. So I tried to find the letters, and the letters were taken from the house, and they had to be taken with a search warrant because they were his personal property and they were, you know, targeted for, supposed to go in the federal mail, but they disappeared. Oh. Um, I talked to Garrison again, and then things started falling apart. He had decided that uh, he remembered more, including uh, seeing a baby cut out of Sharon's body and given to Frank Sinatra by Men in Black. Oh, and uh, I don't know what was going on in his head, but all of a sudden I just really couldn't use anything that he told me. But I do have a lot of material that didn't end up in the book that I found out independently of my interviews with Garrison, which I if my collaborator and I do a follow-up, we're either going to do a podcast or a follow-up book or both. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to get into the garrison stuff because that's where there was some teen sex trafficking going on through that house with, with him and some other people. Okay, so now this brings up, I do remember from Ultimate Evil or Sinister Forces, uh, one, of the, one of the books talking about this, how there was, look, I mean... I think Dennis Hopper had said, look, these guys were into some dark things. And he was referring to Polanski and how Polanski right. had forced, you know, Sharon Tate to have sex with his friend and recorded it. They were basically beyond right. pornographic things being shot potentially for blackmail right. purposes. But there were also, as you say, underage sex things going mm-hmm. on. And mm-hmm. this is where it gets interesting is was Manson procuring girls for this community? You know, that's why you can't deny the fact that Manson knew the crowd, obviously, around Wilson and right. potentially even you know, at some level may have come across Polanski and others in the scene. So yeah. what can you tell us about this underage uh, sex aspect? Because this obviously well, is I'm a very... The, yeah, I'm not the first to report it. You know, there were at least three or four girls who were in the family during that period, 67, 68. Um, Diane Lake, uh, Ruth Ann Morehouse, uh, and they were 13, 14, 15 years old. And they were having sex with... Dennis and his friends. Terry Melcher was obsessed with Ruthann Morehouse. So, I mean, you also do have to think that during that time, it wasn't considered the same way it is now. But it was still, I mean, obviously it wasn't right. It was a crime still. Uh, It was illegal. Yeah, yeah. And the question is, you know, was there money being exchanged with the girls? I I mean, I I couldn't figure out, I, I couldn't get enough evidence to show how it was happening, if there was like a protocol or anything, like if, if he was called and said, send girls there or what, but he definitely was providing young girls to, to people in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Well, it becomes interesting because Polanski gets busted, what, for under for, for sex, with, sex and rape with an sure. underage woman, 13, 14 right. years old. And I have to say, I mean, 
look, it's speculation, but when I first heard the story of the Mansons, you know, I was a kid, and I was felt like Polanski. I'm like, but Polanski wasn't there, and always that kind of struck me for some, you know, in the mm-hmm. gut level of, of of you have to wonder, like, well, he's not there. He's a suspect. He's got to be a suspect. And then sure. I talked to a friend of mine recently who was very close to Robert Mitchum. And mm-hmm. Mitchum, obviously the great old actor, had told him that his own son was, was very good friends with Sharon Tate and might have yeah. actually been there that night. He was, not, not, he, he was supposed to have gone there, I think, or he was supposed to see her. So Mitchum's son, according to my friend, and this is just, again, speculation, but he says, look, Polanski was directly involved, either in he knew, if not was involved they said you know in paying Manson but basically did not he did not want the child with Sharon Tate he was a, you know basically was ending the relationship with like the, there was on the, I think on the brink of divorce so mm-hmm. there you know they basically alleged that Polanski was directly involved and that was, there was a reason why it happened when he was not present yeah that was Jim Mitchum uh, I interviewed Jim quite a bit I think he's still alive living in Arizona mm-hmm. he was very close to Sharon because his girlfriend at the time was an actress named Wendy Wagner mm-hmm. and Wendy was one of Sharon's best friends and they went on their honeymoon with Roman and Sharon um, and he told me some pretty horrible stories there in the book about what how Roman treated Sharon mm-hmm. uh, it was pretty brutal um, so he did believe that Polanski was directly involved. He told that. I have his police interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, he told that from the first day. Uh, my, I left a lot of my Polanski stuff out of the book because so much of it I, I couldn't substantiate, but he, he lied quite a bit in his polygraph test, mm-hmm. uh, and that's available online now. Um, I have the whole transcript and the tape, and just he, he told you know pretty significant lies, and you have to wonder you know, why he would lie on a poly and why the police allowed him, you know, to do it. Uh, And again, you'll see when people read the book that um, I don't think the police wanted to um, take into custody the people that that did it uh, until they were ready a few months later, until everything had been put in place. Right. So then let's let's get to this um, COINTELPRO stuff. But on the way, I have to mention... May Russell was an interesting conspiracy researcher. I mean, obviously, you know, she she was one of the the trend. You know, the, how do you say she was a, a way shower in this field and a lot she of was things. A pioneer. Yeah, a pioneer, she was a right? Pioneer, she yeah. was a pioneer. Yeah. Well, that doesn't mean that everything that she said was true. In fact, you know, but the point right. was that she took she was took risks and she was a gutsy lady. And she had always said, I'm sure you researched this, that um, yeah. there was an naval intelligence guy that was with Tex Watson. And because Tex is the really wild card in the story, as you know, the um, mm-hmm. you you mentioned yeah. this. Specifically, his whole testimony is still, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, his whole um, interview, right? His interview, right. His interview with the police is all buried and will not be disclosed at this point. We need to get that. Right. But essentially, right. Tux is that, you know, he's the killer here. It's not Manson. Right. Manson might have been the manipulator, the pimp, mm-hmm. but he didn't kill anyone. And even in his biography, Manson, I think you, you point out this autobiography that I think he says at the end that uh, last time he saw Tex, Tex took some drugs and basically mm-hmm. took off from the ranch about a day before before yeah. uh, the killing. So mm-hmm. Manson basically is saying there's there's more to the story here. Who was man- mm-hmm. was Tex being manipulated by another element? And that's naval intelligence guy. Did you get anything on this naval intelligence officer? Or do you think it could be Reeve? Is that could, who she might have meant? Uh, well, I, I looked into that. I think the guy's name was Nathaniel Dyke, D-I-G-H-T. Okay. Uh, Paul Krasner also spent a lot of time doing some reporting on him. And Paul, before he, well, not before he died, but for 20 years, shared information with me. Um, 
I, yeah, I, we've had, or excuse me, Tex had connections to military guys. His best friend, David Neal, was in the military, and he was going to military bases to see him mm. uh, when he would leave the Manson family. Um, that's why I fought so hard for these Watson audio tapes that I discovered were in a safe deposit box at, at Watson's attorney's. And I do think that, you know, all the loose threads of my book could be tied nicely together if the police ever release those tapes. And that's precisely why they won't, mm. because it would basically undo everything that uh, was the whole prosecution would unravel. Because I think all the truth about how and why these murders uh, were committed uh, are on those tapes. It's the first audio tape account by one of the killers of the murders and the reason for the murders. It was before any of them were identified in the papers. And the next account came from Susan Atkins. But as you'll see in the book, Susan Atkins' account can't be trusted because no. her lawyers were illegally switched right in the preliminary stages before the, before she was even indicted or even publicly accused of the murders. They took off her court-appointed defense attorney and through a corrupt judge replaced him with a hand-picked former prosecutor who sold her down the river and gave her a script to read. Exactly. Um, she, yeah. she, was, she, she was a Church of Satan late. Was she the one from Church of, the Church of Satan? The she Lib- had, yeah. Anton I mean, LaVey thing? Had, when she was in San Francisco, she had, had been in a couple films, I think, that Le- Anton LaVey made and uh, hung out at the house a little bit. Uh, yeah, she had a pretty, let's say, colorful uh, history even before meeting Manson. Well, that, 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 that's what the whole what I'm trying to get at, I guess, in terms of the contextualizing your point here, chaos, counterintelligence. There's this weird world of people that are tied to you know, the intelligence world, to the military. I mean, you get straight up Satanists like Michael Aquino, who's running, you know, mm-hmm. who runs counterintelligence for the U.S. Army, and he's at the Presidio mm-hmm. base when there's allegations of child um, rape going on. And mm-hmm. he's the Temple of Set. Formerly, he was with the Church of Satan. So it's a weird collection of people. Just give us, yeah. you know, just to wrap it and tie it up a little bit, just a little bit of what you're, what people should understand about how chaos, as, as far as the CIA operation and this counterintelligence world, really fits into the Manson story and the overall picture of the 60s. Yeah, well, there was something called COINTELPRO that was started in the 40s, actually, by Hoover to fight the Ku Klux Klan. It was discontinued in the in the 50s, early 60s, and then revived when the Panthers started becoming what Hoover deemed a threat to national security. And not just the Panthers, but also the free speech movement, the left-wing movement, the anti-war movement, the hippies. Uh, and they, COINTELPRO was exposed in the early 70s as, as having been responsible for, I think, 18 to 25 uh, deaths, uh, executions where uh, they would set up rival groups against each other and uh, say one was about to attack the other and they shoot each other. And there were actual memos that came out during these congressional hearings that said the ultimate goal was termination of, mm-hmm. of these leaders. Geronimo Pratt, uh, the Black Panthers, spent 28 years, I think, in prison mm-hmm. for a uh, double murder in Santa Monica that the FBI knew he didn't commit. They knew that he was in Oakland that night. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't in Santa They had all the surveillance. Mm-hmm. So uh, they were they were reinvigorated, and their goal was to um, neutralize what Hoover and then Governor Reagan, Mayor Sam Yorty, uh, even Lyndon Johnson, uh, believed was the biggest threat to the the country's security, which was the left-wing movement in 1967-68. And then, of course, when Nixon was inaugurated, 
in, in January of, of 69, it, it accelerated even more. Uh, in 67, the CIA started a brand new program called Chaos, which was illegal just by its existence because it was a, a so domestic to, operation. Yeah, CIA and, can't yeah. operate domestically. Yeah, Legal, legally speaking. Right, right. And, and Chaos had the exact same goals that COINTELPRO had. The problem with Chaos is the, the only reason we know about COINTELPRO is a bunch of, a bunch of very brave activists uh, robbed a warehouse in Pennsylvania in the early 70s where mm -hmm. they knew the files were. We've never seen any records of Chaos. Right. Uh, there's never been any testimony about it. There's never been any reports. That's we even, don't know what they did. That's even worse than MKUltra, the mind control program, which we know they shredded, right. but at least some documents right. came out, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, there was kind of a, a, a mixed grab bag of, of different undercover agencies infiltrating groups, provoking them to commit crimes, uh, getting them to extinguish each other's enemies, and, and Manson famously was frightened of the Panthers and thought the Panther, Panthers were out to kill him. Uh, he thought a, a, a black drug dealer that he had shot uh, and he thought killed was a panther and all these panthers were going to raid the ranch. Well, who was giving him this information? The drug dealer, and I know that he knew he wasn't a panther. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have the documents that show that he knew he was just a drug dealer, a black drug dealer. But Manson was getting all this information. Um, it, it's, it's really still it's so frustrating because it's so hard to say what happened definitively about any of this, but what, what we do know is it didn't happen the way we were told it happened. Mm -hmm. That's a great place to start. I want to hear the podcast you're going to put out and the, the, new, the new research. I think that's going to be fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I look forward to, uh, I'd love to speak with you again further and we, we can go oh, sure. deeper into the rabbit hole next time. Okay, great, Sean. It'd be a pleasure. So thanks, thanks for coming on, Tom. I really uh, love talking to you and, sh and swapping notes on history here. Okay, well, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. This has been Monument's Production. He knows I'm gonna stay.